0: Coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap, the script kiddies that hacked the CIA director get busted, how Dropbox hacks your Mac, and the DDoS for Hire service that got shut down. Plus, it's your great questions, our answers, our rockin' roundup, and much, much more on this week's episode of TechSnap. Hi, everyone, and welcome to TechSnap. This is episode 285 of Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems network and administration podcast. We stream this episode live on September 15th, 2016. This episode is brought to you by our three fine sponsors, DigitalOcean, Ting, and iX Systems. I'll tell you more about those great sponsors as the show goes on. Our live stream and all of the downloads over at jupiterbroadcasting.com are powered by the incredible Scale Engine. You should go check that out. It might just solve your problem. My name is Chris, and joining us every single week is our host, the admin, the tech, and the teacher, Mr. Alan Jude. Hello, Alan. Hello, Chris, everybody. Thanks for watching. Now, that is a swag classic. I recognize that shirt. Mm-hmm. Very nice. Representing the, the usual BSDs. Mm-hmm. Very good. Very good, sir. So here we are gathered together <clears throat> to uh, celebrate another episode of Tech Snap. but also, full disclosure, in case something crazy has happened this week, this is a pre-recorded episode because Alan is a traveling man. In fact, you're yeah, are, are, are I'll be you...
1: barely awake in uh, Belgrade, Serbia at this time. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so that's that's wow. I can't wait to hear how that goes, Alan. I'm, I'm sure I'm sure you'll give us an update when you get back. Mm-hmm. so I want to start with this uh, this first story because it caught my attention right away you I'm gonna just say personally some I' some of my favorite stories you picked this week I've been I've been wanting to hear about all of these we also have some mm-hmm. great emails you guys really hooked us up with some great questions and we as always have a rock and roundup so let's start with this one the FBI arrests two alleged members of a group that has hacked the CIA director the CIA well,
1: director well they especially they hacked the CIA director's personal AOL. Oh, yeah.
0: I remember this happened to John Brennan, um, jeez, what was that, last year? Uh, That or maybe even a year before. Yeah, it's Uh, been a little bit now.
1: October 2015, so a year ago, Okay, yeah. So it says, uh, two young men from North Carolina have been charged with the alleged alleged connection to the hacking group Crackers with Attitude, which is just a terrible name.
0: It almost seems fake it's so bad. Crackers with Attitude. (laughs) Well, it's a bunch of
1: people that aren't very good at hacking. (laughs) Uh, The group gained notoriety when it hacked into the personal email account of CIA Director John Brennan last year and in the following weeks claiming responsibility for hacking the Department of Justice, email accounts of several senior officials, and other U.S. government systems.
0: This is back before we blamed the Russians for everything.
1: Yeah. Uh, Well, in this particular case, they were taking credit for it publicly, which is a great way to get caught. Uh, Andrew Otto Boggs, who is 22 – uh, who allegedly used the handled uh, Incursio or Incursio Subter, uh, and Justin Gray Liverman, both of these names sound very gangster with attitude-y, right, um, uh, who are suspected uh, to use the moniker default, spelled in Leedspeak because that's what people do still, uh, were arrested on Thursday, according to a press release by the uh, U.S. Department's, uh, U.S. State Attorney's Office in the Eastern District of Virginia. So CWA, or Crackers with Attitude, first sprung on the hacking scene when they broke into Brennan's AOL account in October of 2015. The group distinguished itself by openly bragging about their exploits and making fun of their victims online. (laughs) After hacking into Brennan's account, one of the members of the group, known as Cubed, said it was so easy a five-year-old could do it. After Brennan, the group uh, targeted and hacked the accounts of the Director of National Intelligence, James Clapper, uh, the White House official, uh, and a bunch of others. Uh, much of the time, the group would use social engineering to gain access to
0: accounts. Ah, so they're not even and cracking February, the password. <laughs> they're fooling AOL. Yeah.
1: Which uh, in February, is ridiculous. Yes. Uh, in February, one member of the group uh, explained to Motherboard how they broke into the Department of Justice system by calling up uh, the relevant help desk and pretending to be a new employee. Mm. Uh, that hack led to the exposure of contact information for 20,000 FBI and, de- and 9,000 Department of Homeland Security employees so they watched the uh, kevin mitnick movie um what was that movie called
0: yeah the one where he talks about social hacking
1: yeah well like the movie that was about him not starring him uh oh oh, oh. it's like hackers to operation takedown
0: oh okay I, I i would i would never have guessed that i don't think it's i've seen it i've heard of movie. it though i guess now oh. that you mention it i've heard uh, about it, the kevin mitnick a, movies it's a
1: relatively good movie it's not very true to life but it's
0: you know of, okay anyway yeah
1: uh the group made heavy use of social media, and in particular Twitter, to spread news uh, of their dumps and mock their victims. <laughs> uh, however, according to an affidavit, Boggs allegedly connected to one of his Im- uh, implicated Twitter accounts, the uh, genuinely spooky, uh, using the IP address registered to his father, uh, with whom Boggs lived. Oh, no. uh, Much the same mistake led to Liverman's identification, an IP address used to (laughs) access the Twitter handle underscore default, uh, and another account during the relevant time period was registered to Edith Liverman. According to an affidavit, publicly available information revealed that Justin Liverman lived with uh, Edith at the time, which they don't say it's his mom, but it sounds like his mom or his aunt or something. Ah, they have the same last name. Anyway, uh, the affidavit also included several sets of Twitter direct messages between the members of the group. Oh, boy.
0: How'd they get that, I wonder?
1: Uh, Well, I'm guessing they subpoenaed Twitter
0: or something. Yep.
1: But it seems obvious that these guys weren't very uh, worried about their security when they were just exchanging messages in in Twitter direct messages rather than over some encrypted channel.
0: That that almost seems, when you're going after the CIA director, that, that just almost seems unfathomable.
1: Yeah, well, it's a bunch of 22-year-old script kiddies that don't know what they're doing. You know, it's, they only managed to, to hack the CIA director because they got his email account, right? His AOL account that he shouldn't have had uh, and probably set up so long ago that the password yeah. was like this. Long.
0: Yeah, and I think, I, I think we even covered the con Do you remember? The, we covered yeah. the contents? It was like an old resume of his and it was nothing yeah, major. Was, well, yeah, there wasn't. Anyway, um, some, one like drone thing in there.
1: Yeah, and in particular, so eventually they switched to like Jabber because they're like, well, if we use something that's not on a server hosted by a big company, it'll be much harder for the government to, to get subpoenas or whatever, right? Uh, what they didn't think to do was turn off logging on the client side. So once the uh, FBI seized their computers, they got uh, logs of all the conversations. So yeah, uh, Liverman uh, seemingly logged his conversations. According to an affidavit, law enforcement found copies of chats on his hard drive, including one where Liverman... Encouraged uh, crackers to publish the Social Security numbers of senior U.S. government officials. These logs make up a large chunk of the affidavit, uh, laying out the group's alleged crimes in details. Investigators found other forensic data on Liverman's computer as well. Ouch! So, it really, goes to show how unsophisticated these particular attackers were, and yet they still managed to do all that damage by, you know, calling up the the phone number of the tech support people and pretending to be a new person and needing help getting set up.
0: A lot of times these hacks we talk about are not particularly sophisticated. Remember the exactly. ones we covered with the uh, local, uh, I can't remember which states it were, but two different states had their local voter registration databases hacked, and it turned out that the it's tools like that were used were just open they were using source.
1: Drupal and <laughs>
0: yeah, and it was like SQL map to scan the SQL server, and there was an open source web vulnerability scanner that was used. Just really basic stuff that anybody watching our show yeah. could do.
1: So, you know, uh, so the thing we've tried to do with TechSnuff is, you know, while we cover the very interesting advanced persistent threat things, it's like, you know, you can spend all the money you want on protecting yourself against advanced persistent threats. But if the, you know, the people in your tech support department are going to give out new accounts to anybody who phones them up, then uh, there mm-hmm. goes your secret data, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, And so most companies would be much better off focusing on preventing these kinds of ridiculous things and not worrying about the advanced persistent threats. Because as uh, the hilarious James Mickens says, if you're being massotted upon, there's (laughs) nothing you can do. Yeah,
0: you're just going to get massotted upon. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, You probably have bigger problems long term. Yeah. Hmm.
1: Yeah, Just changing your password every day isn't going to help you if you're getting massaged. So I'm,
0: I'm picking up on a couple of themes here. Uh, so they first started using a public service where they subpoenaed that, and they got, and they got they, the FBI got the information from Twitter. But the group themselves later on said, "Hey, I'm going to set up a Jabber server." That was actually not a bad idea. but the flaw was they logged the data, and once the FBI subpoenaed computer, the equipment, yeah. they got so the hard drives with the yeah, with yeah. the logs.
1: Once they got their personal computers and they were covered in logs of everything. Yeah, it's like, well,
0: yeah. duh. <laughs> Yeah, why do the private server? I, I guess geeks, like, I log my IRC.
1: Yes, well, I find it immensely useful. Uh, the thing I don't like about Quasal is that it I can't get the logs out in plain text very mm. easily, mm. and they're just harder to search.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, I love having the backlog. Like, the way it works is awesome. I just wish it could also log to a file because mm. I, I i do miss having my old one file per month. Being, like, I have my IRC logs going back to, like, two thousand and. Or
0: scratch the beard and perhaps he may an answer may fall out you never yeah, know exactly yeah hmm. well yeah so i guess it's, i think it is pretty common for geeks to log their chat conversations but in this context again you're going after people in the highest levels of government how stupid yeah. can Th- you be
1: these guys had no upsec at all
0: <laughs> of course at the same time i guess they might have been thinking well we're going after aol he may he would never even of course if you publish the information then he knows. But yeah, if I, you're if
1: you're mocking the CIA director on Twitter, yeah, you think you wouldn't log in to that Twitter account from your home? So mm-hmm. they probably use a VPN. But at at some point he had logged into it, like you know. Uh, while you, the thing about OPSEC is you have to do it every single time. Yes. So if you logged into that uh, with the VPN, ninety nine percent of the time. That one percent you didn't is how you get caught. though. which
0: I think is how the if kind of a i mean to boil it down, I think that's kind of how the Silk Road guy got caught. Mm-hmm. Is he just all he all he didn't follow his pattern one time, and they use that to track it all down and figure out yeah, what or, VPN he was know, using? And
1: if you didn't start using the VPN until you know a week before you started uh, mocking the CIA director, it's like well then they have logs from before. You need a, you need a separate account, or other ways we've done it is so they have a separate Twitter account, but the one time they accidentally posted to the wrong one or whatever. Uh, I, I remember something like that happened to the uh, the Taylor uh, Swift on security, the Taylor Swift mm-hmm. fake account. Uh, and, it, and and somebody figured out who was actually running it or whatever uh, because they accidentally tweeted something they meant to tweet from their other account uh, and, and stuff like that. It's like, you you know, with OPSEC, you have to do it right every single time. Um, and, it, you know, th- there's a bunch of uh, university studies that have been done on, you know, Taking a username and trying to find other usernames that are related to the point of these two usernames are actually the same person, mm. which is very valuable for, you know, uh, blocking trolls. Yeah. You block their account, but you want to also block all their other accounts.
0: A lot, it's useful for a lot of reasons. But well, um, also,
1: Oh, so this guy is definitely the guy that's bad. We want to uh, mm-hmm. um, figure out how to. Did
0: yeah, you see crack- this This last la- party note? Kraka uh, isn't a person. Cracker is an idea. We are all Cracker. We all feel that way deep down. Just look at our country and who we have running for president. <laughs> America needed needed CWA. It needed a wake up call. I don't. I don't. Okay. <laughs> okay. A uh, bunch of twenty okay. year old white kids pretending to be getting into AOL accounts. Uh, but good. You know what? Good first effort. Good first effort. Yep. N- uh, not um, a bad
1: target. <clears throat> yeah. Good to know. Um, Ballsy. That's the thing. Uh, you kind of forgot that part.
0: Yeah, yeah. Maybe we shouldn't be advising them because then the CIA is going to blame us. They spelled crackers with it, with the yeah. Yeah, of course. Of course they did. Of course they did. Then before we get to our next story, I'll tell you about my mobile service provider way over two years now. I've been rocking Ting. You can check them out at techsnap.ting.com. Ting is mobile that makes sense. You only pay for what you use. They just take your minutes, your messages, and your megabytes. They add them up. And that's what you pay for. Each line is six dollars. So you can imagine, as a small business, this is a really, really valuable way. I can get I can get phones to my staff when I need it. Especially, it's nice to be able to grab those SIM cards, pop them in devices when we have something like Linux Fest coming up. Bring a couple extra phones online for one month. One month, my bill goes up a little bit, but there's no contracts, no early termination fee. So I'm comfortable turning them off at the end of that month. Check them out at techsnap.ting.com. They have two networks to choose from: GSM and CDMA. Now. That's also nice because it means there's maybe a device that you already have that you could bring. They have a really nice BYOD page. But I encourage this route because that's how I started with Ting. I brought over an Evo 4G forever ago. Brought it onto the Ting network and tried it out while I had my other phone because – I was skeptical that anything this good, or anything anything this cheap could be that good. I was skeptical. I didn't. No way. No way. Because I did the savings calculator. It turns out like my bill would be like twenty five bucks a month. How could this possibly be? No way. No way. Now my bill turns out with a couple of phones, it's about thirty five bucks a month on average, and the Ting service turned out it was really rock solid. I was able to choose a CDMA network at the time, and then later on I've moved over to GSM. It's it's really nice to have that flexibility. It, it gives you an entire new group of phones that you can bring with you. And that is really nice because when you go to techsnap.ting.com, they'll just take $25 off your first month of service. They'll give it to you in service credit. So if you've got, a, if you've got an average Ting line, you'll probably only pay 23 bucks for your first month if you use a, you know the average amount. And that means you're going to get more than your first month bill paid for. That's awesome. And you can get started at techsnap.ting.com. And while you're there, even if you're not ready to become a Ting customer yet, you can absolutely check out their blog. They just did a great post, put it up today on the new movie streaming services and the ones you also know and love. They've got also some great to- some great posts over there for those of us that will be getting iOS 10. There's some features that aren't talked about as much. They did a blog post on that as well as bringing the Internet Phone 7 Over to Ting. But they got the whole range of phones. The Moto G, or the Moto E, I should say, second gen, on sale right now. they got feature phones. You can grab just a SIM card, and you can go all the way up to the highest end Android phones. And you can also bring your phone. So there's a lot of options. TechSnap.Ting.com. That's where you go to get started. And a big thank you to Ting for sponsoring the TechSnap program. Okay, Alan, so I'm really glad you picked up this story because it was long, it went by, it looked very technical, but I think it's pretty fundamental for people to understand because I think it'll give people a better appreciation of how Dropbox works and specifically why they might want to avoid Dropbox on the Mac, right? Mm-hmm. So tell uh, me well, about probably this. Probably
1: every platform, but yes. <laughs> okay. Uh, so yes, it turns out. so there's actually two posts here from the same author and a couple of days apart, but anyway. a. If you have Dropbox installed, look at your System Preferences Security and Privacy Accessibility tab. And it shows a screenshot of it. Uh, notice something. There's a little, uh, sorry, before this is down. from the first link. At the very bottom, there's a link to the previous
0: post. Uh, sorry, okay. it's all out of order. No, all right. No anyway.
1: Uh, I can get it. Notice something, and there's Dropbox right there on the list with access to everything. Yeah,
0: I've seen that before on the Macs we have, with well, the Mac here in the studio that has it.
1: Yeah, so there's the Dropbox. Uh, you ever wonder how it got there? Do you think you might have put it there yourself after Dropbox asked you for permission to control the computer? No, I assure you, your memory isn't faulty. You didn't accept Dropbox. It added itself without asking you.
0: Oh, that doesn't seem good.
1: You know, uh, via the pop-up box is the only uh, officially supported way for apps uh, are allowed to appear on the list. But Dropbox never asked you for that permission. We'll get into why that's important in a moment. But if you have time, it's a fascinating experiment. Try and remove it. Oh, really? What happens? Yes. Uh, well, if you run Dropbox again, it adds itself back. It just <laughs> without asking you. <laughs> oh, again. I see.
0: I see something's missing. Let me take care of that for you.
1: I <laughs> <Yep>. like <laughs> <Dog> fixes. <laughs> uh, so this leaves a couple of questions. First, why does it matter? And second, is there any way to keep Dropbox from doing this, or to keep Dropbox but stop it having access to control your entire computer? Right. Uh, there are at least three reasons why it matters. It matters first and foremost because Dropbox didn't ask for permission to take control of your computer. <clears throat> Sorry. Um, hmm. So what does take control mean here? It means literally do uh, whatever you can do on the desktop. Click buttons, uh, menus, launch apps, delete files, yeah. accept security dialogs. Yeah. The
0: universal uh, the universal access thing, that, that feature in Mac OS X is very very powerful and I've seen it used in applications that re- will replace text in any program that you're using and uh, it's it's essentially you, you you have the power of the user, even at the UI level. Like, you can manipulate UI elements when you have this. It's, it's very yeah. powerful. It's uniquely powerful in Mac OS X. Yeah,
1: so basically, uh, for those not familiar with Mac, you know, the UAC pop-ups on Windows, you want to allow this program. You uh, For accessibility, there's a way to say, for certain apps, always accept and so on, and there's a whole framework for this. And But it actually allows the... the app to actually like move your mouse and click things and do things such that another app can't tell that it wasn't you doing it. Correct. But anyway, so he says there's a reason why apps in this list have to ask explicitly for your permission and why it takes a password and explicit user permission to get on that list because it's a security risk. Uh, The list of authorized rights used by the system is managed by this uh, policy based system that's held in the var db auth.db file. Uh, and a backup or default copy is retained in system library security authorization.plist. Uh, so there's a, a property called allow root, and the allow root property specifies whether a write should be allowed automatically if the requesting process is running with UID equals zero. The default to false uh, if not specified. So, in other words, if allow root isn't explicitly set, the default is that even a process with root user privileges does not have the right to add things to this list. Uh, since it's not specified in the default shown above, then even root couldn't add Dropbox to the list of apps in the accessibility preferences. It is possible, then, that Dropbox has overridden this setting in auth.db. Let's go and check. So basically, by using SQLite directly, rather than the OSX TCC tool that's used to manage the database, uh, you can override the policy and just set whatever you want by executing raw SQL commands as root. Okay, it's so so, so Apple
0: is managing what is available as a universal access application via SQLite database? Like, yeah. they have, like, a master database. These are the applications. And there's a tool to add entries to this database. And instead of and using that, cool that tool... It's
1: a policy. But if you just go around it and edit that database as root... Because it's SQL. You can do whatever you want.
0: Okay. Yeah. Okay, that's... Okay, that's... that's I can see Apple yeah, probably doesn't a, like that very much. It's kind
1: of a glaring hole in the Apple thing here because any app can do this and... Yeah. I imagine Apple will have to fix that.
0: I wonder if they'll get it. Yeah, I mean.
1: But I, I'm not sure how they're going to fix it without breaking every app, including Dropbox.
0: You almost make you almost wonder if they have to wait till the next release. When they, it'll probably have to be the next release. And, and they're about to ship, like, next week, the current version. So it's <laughs> so not going to be fixed in on that one. That one's cooked.
1: <laughs> Yikes. But, yeah, so basically by editing the SQL directly, it shows there's commands are in the dock there. Uh, you can override this policy and add any app you want to the whitelist. Or worse, any app running as root can do this without you even knowing that it's doing it. Uh, so, so the, the hmm. poster here says, I tested this with some of my own apps and found it worked reliably. Uh, it'll even work while system preferences is open, uh, which is exactly the behavior I saw with Dropbox. So you're sitting there looking at the list and things just Bloop. randomly pop up into it. Uh, I remain, uh, it remained to actually prove that it was Dropbox doing this, though. Uh, And this was indeed the hack that Dropbox was using and maybe Dropbox found some other way. So I started uh, looking at exactly what Dropbox did after giving it the admin password on installation or launch. Mm. So I used a program called DetectX. I was able to see that Dropbox added a new folder to the library folder after the password was entered. Uh, As you can see, instead of adding something to the Privileged helper tools folder, as is the standard behavior for apps on a Mac that need to escalate privileges for one or two specialist operations. Dropbox installs its own folder containing these interesting items. Mm. There's one deliciously named DB access perm, or for permission. I see that, and uh, we finally hit gold. Uh, and when he ran strings on it, and found exact proof I was looking for that Dropbox is using an SQL attack on the TCC database to circumvent Apple's authorization policy. So you can see in the strings there, you can actually see the SQL statements they're running are right there in the strings in yeah. the binary. Yeah. So it's pretty obvious proof. It's like there's the path to the database and the SQL statements are running. Uh, so it's very clear that this is exactly what Dropbox is doing. This is uh, what I do suspect, essentially, in light of the fact that there's uh, just doesn't seem to be any need for Dropbox to have accessibility permissions, is that it's uh, just there in case they want that access in the future. Uh, if that's right, it suggests that Dropbox might simply want to have access to everything and anything on your Mac, whether they actually need it or not. Right? They don't want to have to pop up later and ask you for a new permission. They just want to you know, have Dropbox just work or whatever. So they give themselves access to everything on your entire computer.
0: Yeah, that seems like such an old way of thinking. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, the upshot for me was that I learned a few things about security and authorization and how that works on a Mac that I didn't know before investigating what Dropbox was up to. But most of all, I learned that I don't trust Dropbox at all. uh, Unnecessary privileges and backdoors are what I call untrustworthy behavior and a clear breach of user trust. With Apple's Apple's recent stance against the FBI and their commitment to privacy in general, I feel moving uh, all my files into iCloud and dropping Dropbox is a far more sensible way to go for me. Uh, for those of you who are stuck with Dropbox but don't want to allow it to access all the accessibility features, you can thwart Dropbox hacks by following a procedure he has linked there.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I've been watching a project called LibreVault, which I think will be a pretty good sync solution, and also there's SyncThing, which is already an open-source solution.
1: Yes, uh, SyncThing is what the FreeBSD people recommend.
0: Yeah, and it's nice. Um, so those are other options. I would probably, if I uh, if I were going to... If somebody hold, held a gun to my head and made me choose, I would probably choose iCloud over Dropbox for privacy reasons if you're going to, yeah. you know. Wow. That is – so what's egregious about that is I think that in order to figure that out, Dropbox must have spent a lot of time poking around the Mac, figuring out how they can get the highest level of privileges – they could possibly want. And they did some sniffing around, or they must have or hired... somebody else
1: figured it out. Or yeah. they
0: hired a software engineer, or there's a, there's, or this is something people already know about or are taking advantage of, and Dropbox is just following their lead. I'm but not sure. But it's
1: also pretty lame of Apple that the yeah. whole authorization thing is an unprotected... SQ. Like, you know, there's yeah. uh, Step flags it up a bit. in BSD where you set so that even root can't change a file, although root can remove the flag if they know it's there, but... Um, you know, there are at least a couple of steps they could have taken to make it harder for the app to just ignore all of their security policy and and modify the file.
0: It seems like though this would be also now Apple's response is going to be something overly dramatically protective, and so you were also there's some there's some loss there too because there's something nice about them using just a standard way to manage this that people can grok and understand, and now it's going to be some locked down encrypted blob that we won't have any idea how to get to have to use the tcc tool yeah 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 give and take i suppose it's probably better for a user security overall you know let's talk about something that's better for you overall and that's ix systems if you're a home small business or an enterprise ix systems has has rigs powered by those incredible intel processors built to your spec you get to talk to an engineering staff that really knows what the hell they're doing they've invested in this area for a long time i think you'd be really impressed with ix systems if you just gave them a little call Tell them what you got going on, see what your workload is, and see what they could do for you. ixsystems.com slash techsnaps where you go. You get the white paper there to grease the wheels up the chain, and you support the show. And Dig around over there. There's probably, I guess, I don't know, probably still enough time, probably still enough time if you want to join uh, the folks at ix at Meet BSD. Yep. I think uh, can still if get you involved.
1: sign up before the end of uh, September 30th, you get $30 off the price, so hurry up.
0: Yeah, okay, good, yeah, okay, so some, uh, okay, I knew there was a cutoff for the, for the discount. I mean, you could still go if, you, if it's past the, the cutoff there, but, yeah, that's pretty yeah,
1: cool. Yeah, you can still sign up anytime, it's not until November, so you can sign up anytime in October, but it would cost more, so sign up soon. Yeah,
0: I know it's a long shot for a lot of you out there, but if you just really want a real-world example of the great people behind IEX and how they invest in the community and the companies around them, there's no better example than this. So check them out at MeetBSD, and then, in the meantime, go to ixsystems.com slash techsnap to learn more. Check out their company site. Over you can go over there and maybe I don't know. Take a look at their clients page. So when you're having that conversation, this is a great play, a great page to bring up. This list is very impressive, and it shows that they've been around for a long time and made some great, great business partners. ixsystems.com/slash techsnap and a big thank you to ix for sponsoring the techsnap program. Okay, so if I'm correct, these guys that just got busted were like basically guns for hire. Is that right? And they've finally been stopped. We go to Krebs on security. Yes. Diddle-loop, diddle-loop, diddle-loop.
1: yes. Uh, so the people that run VDOS, which is a DDoS for hire service, have been arrested. This is uh, two young Israeli men alleged to be the co owners of a popular online attack for hire service, uh, repor- reportedly arrested in Israel uh, last Thursday. The pair were arrested around the same time that Krebs on security published a story naming them as the masterminds behind the service uh, that can be hired to knock websites and internet users offline with powerful blasts of junk data. Uh, the pair was reportedly questioned and released Friday on the equivalent of ten thousand dollars U.S. bond each. Hmm. The Israeli authorities also seized their passports, uh, placed them under house arrest for ten days, and forbade them from using the internet or telecommunications equipment of any kind for thirty days.
0: <laughs> oh wow, the Mitnick the Mitnick punishment.
1: Yeah, uh, which is unconstitutional in the states now, or, or was after uh, the day the, oh. it ran out on Mitnick, they changed the rules. On yeah. That. Uh, But they say uh, the two are suspected of running a service called VDOS. As described this week's story, VDOS is a booter service that has earned in excess of $600,000 over the past two years, helping customers coordinate more than 150,000 distributed analysis service attacks designed to knock websites offline. I wonder how much of that money is legitimate and how much is like stolen credit cards and Hmm. so on. Because do you really pay with your real credit card to a site that dos's people
0: and are you, it's probably not all bitcoin either that's probably not right. what's happening yeah
1: yeah anyway uh the two men's identity was exposed because uh vdos's site was massively hacked filling secrets about tens of thousands oh. of paying customers and their targets <laughs> A that database was obtained by krebs and he did his research and found the people behind it uh for most of the day friday uh after this came out so last friday um Krebs on security came under a heavy and sustained denial-of-service attack, which spiked at almost 140 gigabits per second. Sure, I'm ju- it's just a coincidence. A single message was buried in each of the attack packets no. saying, uh, Goody faggot.
0: <laughs> <laughs> what?
1: They're, they're not very happy with uh, Krebs and his goody 2 shoes
0: Oh, my gosh. Uh,
1: for a brief time, the site was unavailable, but thankfully it is guarded from denial-of-service by Prolexic, uh, which Krebs pays a lot of money for. Uh, the attacks uh, against this site are ongoing. At the end of August, the two authored a technical paper on uh, how DDoS attacks work and the methods to create them, which was published by the Israeli security e mm. Digital Whisper. Uh, in it, Hurry signed his real name and says he is 18 years old and about to be drafted into the Israeli Defense Force. Mm. And the other author uh, signed the paper under an alias of his Gmail account, uh, rizelb 7 uh, the email address that I pointed out in a previous report as associated with one of the administrators of the site. So they didn't do a very good job of uh, of hiding their identity or securing their own site. Uh, Sometime on Friday, Vdos went offline. It is currently unavailable. According to several automated Twitter feeds that track suspicious large-scale changes to the internet routing table, it appears to actually have been a BGP hijack. Uh, Sometime in the last 24 hours, Vdos was apparently the victim of a BGP hijack. Uh, later, reached by phone, Bryant Townsend, who's the CEO of BackConnect Security, which is a, a security firm, confirmed that it was actually his company that was doing the BGB hijack of Vidas's internet address space. Um, said the company took this as extreme measure in an effort to get out from under a massive attack that was being launched against their network on Thursday. What uh, Vidas was attacking them, and so they hijacked Vidas's IP address range so that they could tell the bots to stop. They basically took the IP addresses of VDOS's uh, site so that when the bots connected to get instructions, they could tell them to stop.
0: Okay.
1: Uh, (laughs) So the company received uh, an email directly from VDOS claiming credit for the attack. They say for about six hours, we were seeing attacks of more than 200 gigabits per second hitting us. Uh, What we were doing was for defensive purposes, we were simply trying to get them to stop and to gather as much information as possible about the botnet they were using and reporting that to the proper authorities. Uh, Krebs also has access to a large log file uh, from the VDOS site, which he's posted up uh, for people to download. The file lists the VDOS username uh, that ordered and paid for the attack, the target internet address that they wanted to attack, the method of the attack, so you can see the different types of DDoS that they offered, the internet address of the user when they logged in and asked for the attack, uh, so, you know, what address the user was connecting from when they asked for the attack to happen, uh, the date and time the attack was executed, for how long, and the browser user agent string of the user that requested it.
0: Hmm.
1: So, it's interesting to see what browsers people who DDoS people use.
0: <laughs> well, hell yeah, so, huh? And
1: yeah, I'm sure the, many of the IP addresses are VPNs, but uh, there's a bunch of them that are probably dumb enough to not
0: be. What's all the Safari doing in here? Apple Safari, yeah. Apple Safari, and the Google Chrome.
1: It is, it's slightly truncated in the image there. I'm wondering if it's uh, actually
0: done from an iPhone. Probably not. That'd be so funny. Probably not, yeah. Huh. Well, uh, so I guess it's a good thing that uh, Krebs is paying for that extra DDoS protection. Turned out to be uh, a good investment this week for him. And and it's, what are the chances he, he looked at the packet? Of course, I'm supposed to. Of course, he would look at the packet. Of course, they knew he was going to look at the packet. Uh, that's just super funny that they embedded a message in there. The message itself is not so funny, but... That's pretty good. So we'll have a link to the full article in the show notes. Any other thoughts on that, Alan? Uh, No, just uh,
1: interesting to see Krebs uh, getting back at the people that keep detossing him.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Boy, sometimes people just go after him, don't they? It is a thing that he has to put up with. Mm -hmm. Oh, there you go. DigitalOcean.com, next sponsor of the TechSnap program. Go over to DigitalOcean and use our promo code SNAPOcean. That's one word you apply to your account to get a $10 credit. Just a couple of weeks ago, Noah and I were messing around with different web RTC solutions. And the one we like a lot is Jitsi. But there's a couple of things that don't work unless you host it yourself. And that's when we just immediately knew what our next step was, spin up a droplet at DigitalOcean. Within less than 55 seconds, we had a system ready to go, we could log into, we had the entire NGINX and all the uh, the basics, stuff you need installed and ready to go. Now, we don't always do this. In fact, Noah prefers to build the entire thing completely from the ground up every single time. I, however, have gotten a little more lazy. Now that I've deployed a few of these uh, uh, ZAMPs, is that what they're, what is it called when it's, yes. it, yeah, yeah, okay, okay. I've, pl- I've been de- de- deploying a few of those, and it's like, I just need to try this for a few hours. I, tr- I I run it. It's really fantastically set up. I couldn't have done it better myself. There's really good documentation to back it all, and the dashboard really makes this all super straightforward. DigitalOcean.com, just use the promo code SNAPOcean. They have all SSD-back storage, including block storage, which you can add up to 16 terabytes as you need it. And I want to emphasize, if you're experimenting with something or want to learn, want to train, that hourly pricing is outrageously great. Three cents an hour for a really, really, really nice rig. They also now offer um, high-memory droplets. And again, you can run those hourly. It's pretty neat. And something we don't talk about as often anymore because it's just like if you're a DigitalOcean user, you just know about it. But if you're new to DigitalOcean, I love their private networking. It enables droplets to talk with other droplets in the same data center. Traffic sent between the droplets across the private network doesn't count towards your bandwidth transfer. It's very nice for doing like host-to-host communication, backups, database replication, file storage, things like that. DigitalOcean.com. Just use our promo code SNAPOcean. And a big thank you to DigitalOcean for sponsoring TechSnap program i want to take this minute before we jump into the feedback and i don't know if i've mentioned it on this show we launched a new show over at jupiter broadcasting called user air um and uh, it hosts it's hosted by myself noah and rikai rikai made his uh, jupiter broadcasting debut in a new show and the feedback for the first three episodes has just been off the charts great people are really loving it the fourth episode's already getting cooked right now So, in fact, it might be out possibly by the time you hear this episode. So you can find it at error.show or just find user error posted at jupiterbroadcasting.com. The RSS feed's out, so that way you can just subscribe and grab the show when we release a new one. But with the news all done, that means it's time for the TechSnap Feedback. Thanks for sending your emails to techsnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com or pop in that contact link at the top of the Jupiter Broadcasting website. Michael sends in our first email this week. He says, hi, Chris and Alan. I'm looking at connecting my home network and my parents' network via VPN. Both networks have an edge router little, or I'm sorry, light, running OpenBSD." Uh, These are small MIP64 machines with not much processing power. That said, the bandwidth requirements aren't high either, with the highest possible speed being between the two networks of around 10 megabits. Both networks have dynamic IP addresses on the public side, so whatever solution used would need to handle that, even if it means just simply reconnecting. For my setup like this, would IPsec be suitable, or would something like OpenVPN be suitable? be a better fit or maybe something else entirely i'm willing to experiment and i can remotely access both boxes via ssh so if the vpn ever goes down some, but something more reliable would obviously be preferred thanks in advance michael yep.
1: uh so yeah um ipsec has the slight advantage of because it's built into the os uh you don't have to worry about the fact that it, it's mip 64 so that, you know, is there a package of OpenVPN uh, for mip 64 Uh, And because it's built in like that, it probably uses a bit less memory than having to run the whole OpenVPN daemon and so on. Uh, And um, the crypto might be slightly faster, although like you know, uh, every bit of CPU might matter in this case. But like you said, you only have so much bandwidth anyway. So uh, because it's OpenBSD, IPsec is probably a good bet. Although OpenVPN should work just as well as well. Uh, It might you know take a little bit more memory and a little bit more CPU horsepower, but probably still small enough that it worked work fine on the mip64 as long as you can actually get a versionable vpn that'll run on the mip64 right right hmm. uh, and then like uh, for the reconnecting i'm guessing you already have dynamic dns or something dynamic dns for SSH. Uh, for the ssh and so yeah you can just have it yeah. reconnect using that and it will automatically uh, you know, yeah. eventually it will pick up that the ip address the other side changed and connect as far as deciding which one you know, if it's your parents should call your house or your house should call their house, it really depends, uh, which end you expect to change, uh, more frequently and so on. Uh, the advantage of having it on your end is that, you know, if your end is down, uh, you're not usually going to want a VPN into your parents' house anyway yet. Right? <laughs> um, whereas if their end's down, you have to go there to fix it. Uh, so having their end just call your end might be the easier solution there. Uh, although at the same time, you know, if, a student and you, you know, move at the end of every semester and so on. Uh, maybe it makes more sense to have the server at your parents' house that's stable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, for that definition, the word "stable" would be the the server.
0: Yeah. Scott writes in with our next one about basically a high availability question when it comes to pfSense. Is I just ordered a pair of uh, HAPF Sense boxes for my company from the pfSense store. I have used a single pfSense at home, and I've noticed that when I'm doing upgrades, pfSense will reboot at will. With a pair of HAPF senses, is it possible to upgrade one box, let it come up back online, and then upgrade the next box to avoid any downtime? Thanks for the help, Scott.
1: Yeah, that's basically exactly what you should do. Uh, so when you actually configure the uh, PF senses in high availability, uh, it will engage an extra protocol called uh, PF Sync, hmm. which will actually sync the state table of all the currently translated NAT sessions and so on, and all it's the like, firewall rules yeah. over to the second one. So that if it does fail over to the second machine, uh, it knows about all the currently ongoing sessions. So, like, even an in-progress Skype call won't get disconnected. So it's, like, really
0: up to to date all the time? Yeah, it's it's constantly
1: up to date. uh, Okay. Uh, And uh, that way – and then it uses – Automatic like uh, IP-level failover. So basically, uh, the two PF senses are sitting there, and they each send out a ping like every 100 milliseconds. Are you there? Are you there? If, are you there? Yeah. Or I'm still here. I'm, I'm still, still here. here. I'm still here. Yeah. And as the other side stops hearing that the other person's there, uh, it promotes itself to the master. And you can do this with mo- – you can even have three PF senses if you're crazy. Uh And you set it up with different delays. So each one says that, and then it elects itself as leader if if the other one is not uh, answering or not saying, I'm still here, I'm still here anymore. And then it takes over all the traffic. And then you can configure the setting whether you want, when the second one comes back up or the first one comes back up, do you want it to take back over or do you want to stay on the current one and not fail over until that one goes down, which independent – you know, if your boxes are matched, then maybe that's fine. But if you have a bigger one and a smaller one for the backup, you probably want to get off the spare tire onto the real tire. Are
0: thing. you on board with the uh, camp of thought that says you should probably have maybe dedicated network cards to do this high availability communication so that way it's not like a switch thing or something like that? I know a lot of people right, yeah, when uh, they configure that. With
1: PFSense, you would basically have your two separate devices both going into the switch uh, and they would share the one IP address. Uh, usually, when you set this up, they'd actually each have a dedicated management IP address, possibly on a different interface, and then they would share uh, one – the IP address that all your machines use as their default gateway okay. uh, by basically both pretending to have the same MAC
0: address. But what about, what about for the sync protocol and the heartbeat? Should that be on its separate network? Should that be on a separate NIC? Uh,
1: it can be on the separate management or
0: it might be
1: not. It really depends how many NICs you have on the PFSense. If you yeah, have the extra okay. NICs, you might as well use them. So if it's, not a can, it's not a requirement. It's not a requirement, Okay. Uh, and uh, this way you can have, uh, it'll automatically fail over and do everything. That'd be Um, sweet. For the upgrade, you might even go a little bit further and upgrade one of them and run it for a day Mm. and then upgrade the second one. Uh, Although the nice thing is PFSense uses the um, uh, NanoBSD style setup where it has two firmware images on the drive, uh, and when you upgrade, you overwrite the older one. So if something does go bad, you can always force it to go back and boot off the... Previous configuration as well and get back to what it was before the upgrade easily as well. Hmm. And uh, it sounds like their newer versions might actually use that with ZFS as well. Uh, But that's not in the currently shipping version.
0: Okay, okay. All right. Good stuff. Mark writes in, and I think he's got some ZFS questions, hard Mm -hmm. ones. Well, hard for him. (coughs) Yeah, uh, he says uh, he's puzzled when moving and copying data in the zfs world i hope you understand what i'm trying to ask you here for starters i'm asking about the send and receive command as i understand you can copy data e.g files from one instance to another this instance is a pool am i correct so far
1: uh not exactly so uh in zfs you have data sets which are basically file systems like you would have created on separate partitions on your drive like if you had four partitions you would create four file systems uh what makes them different is each of those instead of taking up you know whatever you know partition your drive up into four equal sizes or four different sizes, with a pool each uh, data set or file system takes up only the space of the data that's in it, and they all share the free space in the pool. Uh, so the pool is just uh, so basically there's two different commands in ZFS. There's zpool which deals with combining a bunch of disks together to give you a bunch of space. And then there's the ZFS commands, which make uh, file systems and volumes on top of that, that you then store your files in. So when you're doing send and receive, you're doing it between data sets. Datasets always live in a pool, but as far as send and receive is concerned, it doesn't matter if it's in the same pool or a different pool or anything like that.
0: And he wants to know, too, if uh, you can copy files from one pool to another using these commands or only the whole data
1: set. You can only copy the whole data set. Uh if you want to copy files, you can just copy them with copy or SCP or rsync or whatever you want to do. Um but yeah, you can replicate an entire data set, which includes all the files, all the properties, all the settings, all the times, all the metadata, everything.
0: You want to um, also so you can't
1: a... copy individual files with the ZFS command, unless mm. you make a separate data set for each file. So like uh if you're doing VMs and you're gonna have, you know, make a separate data set for each VMDK, that's gonna be many gigabytes, that makes sense. Um You know, you're not going to create a separate data set for every file in your WordPress install or something, though.
0: Sure, yeah. So Mark also was wondering if you could use uh, ZFS send and receive to copy data from a ZFS quote-unquote server to a ZFS quote-unquote thumb drive.
1: Yes. Uh, It's it's just data set to data set, so it doesn't matter if you're, you know, if it's a a single drive with ZFS copies equals two, or if it's a mirror or RAID Z, uh, basically what ZFS send does is take the data that's in a file system and serialize it into basically just a a binary stream, uh, and then the ZFS receive command can take that stream and turn it back into a file system. And it's specifically designed to be very compatible, so you can set ZFS send and receive between any versions of ZFS. Like, you can actually do a ZFS send from the very newest V5000 with all the features back to an old, like, V17 pool if you want to. That's great. Uh, some of the new features, if you want to if you want to keep the new features when you're send and receiving, there's extra flags you have to set, which then take away some of that compatibility. But uh, So then he asks about uh, doing a send and repeat uh, from two data sets that are on the same pool. Uh, so you still use ZFS send and receive, you just pipe them back to back. So you just do ZFS send, you know, this data set at this snapshot, pipe into ZFS receive this different data set, and you can copy the data uh, back to the same server. Uh, I've done this on purpose to change settings on a data set. For example, if it was all not compressed and I wanted to compress it, I could do this and have it compress it as it
0: writes it. Uh Uh-huh, yeah. Clever.
1: Or I did this also to uh, upgrade an entire set of data to using the new larger block size. Uh By storing everything in in one megabyte blocks instead of 128k blocks, it's seven times less metadata. And uh, when you write 50 terabytes of data that adds up to a couple of gigs of
0: extra space, good. A nice. of terabytes of extra space. that's pretty that's a good trick Alan hmm. all right well uh, mark very well. mark is uh, getting started on a long journey but uh, he's got some good questions uh, all right so we got more storage questions we're on a storage train and Morgan writes in with the next one on freeBSD or Linux can you use an external USB hard drive as part of a Z pool okay. if so- Just answering that part first. Yes, uh, you can use
1: anything that your operating system kind of presents as if it was a hard drive. Whether that's a RAM disk or uh, a USB hard drive or a real hard drive or an SSD or an NVMe or whatever. Or, you know, ZFS will work perfectly fine on a bunch of files. It's just not as good. And obviously, if you store all your ZFS stuff in a RAM disk and then reboot, all your data is gone, obviously, (laughs) right?
0: um. (laughs) Okay, so it says, well, if it's yes, then can I mix and match external and internal hard drives in a mirror? I'm trying to create some storage out of odds and ends until I have the money to buy something new. You can, but it's, you know, how
1: much do you really want to keep the data? Uh, It comes down to how badly you want to preserve that data versus how badly you want to save money. Uh, and so you can mix and match internal and external drives, but, you know, uh, and that's not bad if they're in a mirror, but I wouldn't want to mix them another way. So if you have, uh, two internal drives and two external drives and you set up the mirror, so each one is one internal, one external so that, you know, you have your drives inside and then the drives that are the backup are external. Mm -hmm. That works. Although remember that each of the internal drives will now be speed limited to the speed of the external drive. Uh, and then, if you do the regular, where you have one mirror of the internal drives and one mirror of the external drives, remember that ZFS only has redundancy inside each mirror pair. But it's so basically, it stripes across the two mirrors and assumes each mirror is not going to lose all of its disks. But if you have two external drives uh, as one mirror and two internal drives as the other, if the external drives disconnect, then all of a sudden you've lost half of every file, right? Because you're striping across yeah. the two mirrors. Yeah. Uh, so you can, but, you know, at some point, mixing and matching your odds and ends and trying to make it work uh, comes down to, it's like, gee, how badly do you want to keep those files? <laughs> if you if it's really that badly, maybe you can get uh, a mere pair of nice drives instead of trying to mix and match every scrap drive you have laying in a box in your basement. <laughs> uh, but you can do it. Uh, and, you know, you just really, really deep mirrors of your old crappy drives and it'll ZFS will do it best to keep it working.
0: Okay. Now, on the opposite spectrum of that, Scott writes in with a question about trim when you have SSDs for your RAID. He says, I have a couple of new servers which have eight 400-gigabyte SSDs in a hardware RAID 6. Hardware RAID 6. It requires that I run uh, – it is required that I run any, is, oh, is it, I that, think he's asking, it? yeah, oh, yes. is, is that, it required that I run any various trim commands on a setup like this, or is trim not really needed in this use case? Thanks for your help, Scott.
1: It, the, first of all, it really depends what SSDs there are. Uh, you know, most enterprise SSDs don't really require the trim anymore. They, they manage it inside enough, uh, although most of them will benefit from trim, although some cheaper SSDs will actually... Uh, slow down and do a bunch of extra work when they get a trim, whereas they'd actually be more performant if you didn't send the trims uh, during when they're working and so on. Mm. Uh, quite a bit of research went into this at Netflix because they found that if they write more than so many megabytes a second, the SSDs will start pausing and doing all the garbage collection to free up space. Like So the SSD, when you have a 400 gig SSD, it's probably actually a 480 gig SSD, uh, but the 80 gigs is reserved and it, it you know, so that when a cell wears out, there's a replacement one, but also so that in the middle of some of this stuff, there's some extra space, some slack for it to use. Yeah. Uh, and when that runs out of that, it has to pause and clean up all the blocks that are um, not used anymore so it can have access to them. In particular, uh, when you erase something on Flash, usually you have to erase a, a full erase block, which might be a megabyte or 16 megabytes. So if there's 4K, if you free up 4K in the middle of a 16 megabyte block, it can't, erase all of that so it either has to copy all that data to an already erased block and leave that hole that you can then reuse later or it just ignores it and when you write to that hole it fills it in somewhere else and then has to defrag you know all kinds of crazy stuff happens in the flash translation layer Uh, anyway so with enterprise ssds it's probably not that important because you're hiding the ssds behind a raid 6 uh, is probable that the rate controller is not going to pass through the trim properly anyway. That's what I was wondering. So you probably wouldn't be able to. Okay. Uh, if you had all eight of these drives without the rate controller running into ZFS, uh, you can, uh, it, it, it's so what I was
0: going to say it, is we'd have to come down if the rate controller has it as a feature, if the rate controller has that functionality, right?
1: Right. It comes down to that. And then also your OS and the file system you put on top of it. And, uh, the, also the question of whether it's actually going to help you or hurt you in your performance. Uh, you know, especially if the SSDs aren't getting very close to being full, then there might be some advantages to to not having to deal with it. Hmm. Uh and so on. Um But yeah, if it was all ZFS by default, ZFS trims the entire SSD when you connect it or the entire section of the SSD you give it. Uh there's actually a to be able to turn that off because they're brand new drives. There's no really sense waiting as it zeros out. All 400 gigs on all eight SSDs. It'll take a bunch of time for no reason, right? Uh, but yes, um,
0: on most newer drives, trim is not that needed. Uh, but and, and also, the uh, if they're enterprise class SSDs and they're designed to work in a RAID, there's probably some accommodation for that there already. But I, I, I find this to be in this topic still to be very interesting, and, and it, it drives me to want to test it and to see what. Yes,
1: uh, so. The, when I mentioned Netflix, there's a study they published from, uh, at uh, Asia BSDCon two years ago. Okay. About the, the, and uh, they also have a presentation about it at BSDCon. And they experimented with this? Yeah, so they found that if they limit how much they write to no more than so many oh, megabytes right. a second. Right. Uh, because when it went and did the garbage collection, it would actually kill off the read speed as well. Sure, of course. So uh, for Netflix, it was, we need to be able to make sure, uh, what rate can we add new videos to the drive without causing people loading videos off the drive to slow down <laughs> uh, and so they, they write this, uh, they wrote this very advanced uh, throttling system that's now part of FreeBSD to let you control that. That's pretty cool
0: alright if you'd like to get your email into the show please go to Jupiter Broadcasting and click that contact link and then choose TechSnap from the drop down or email us directly techsnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com and we will try to get your questions answered in the upcoming episode next week alright with the feedback all done that means it's time for the TechSnap Roundup <laughs> Welcome to the TechSnap Roundup. Yeah, that's what that crazy music means. The Roundup are stories that just didn't fit at the top of the show, but we still want to cover some of them with you and give you some links to follow up on your own after the show. And some of these links came from our very own subreddit at techsnap.reddit.com. This first story is sort of interesting. Sign of the times. Microsoft's making a big adjustment, and Win32 apps are going to start showing up in the Windows Store, which before was locked down to only those Windows Universal apps. And uh, so lo and behold, those good old Win32 apps will be showing up now. You know, the apps that people actually use on their desktop. Yeah.
1: So now, is their store include free stuff or do you have to pay for every app? Oh, no,
0: no. There's free stuff in there. Okay. yeah. 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 There's some interesting stuff in there. There's, you know. It is what it is, I guess. it's not, It's not. It doesn't blow you away. Uh, Stanford engineers propose a technology to break the net neutrality deadlock. A technology for this? Tell me about yeah, it. Yeah, so they're proposing some kind of network
1: cookie where the user specifies which traffic they want to be high priority and which traffic isn't.
0: That's interesting, I suppose.
1: But then what user's not going to be just like, don't traffic shave any of my traffic?
0: Yeah, and how is that even going to be set by the yeah. users?
1: So I don't know that it'll work, but it's interesting that
0: uh, trying to find a solution to these problems. It is an interesting way to think about it. So that's something. So this is something else. This laptop is two computers in one thanks to swappable modules. I guess this is kind of this reminds me of an old machine I used to have uh, it has a dock. It provides tiny modular computers with eleven point six inch HD display, a full keyboard, a trackpad, a webcam, mic, speaker, battery, etc. So the dock is where the actual magic is at in this thing.
1: Well, well I think actually the whole laptop is a dock, and then just yeah. that that module pulls well, yeah.
0: inside is actually the computer. That's probably the better way to put it. Is this is this is like a receptacle where the computer slides in, and it's not it's no slouch for three hundred bucks. You get uh, two gigs of RAM, thirty two gigs of storage, Bluetooth, Wi Fi, and an Intel Z eight three hundred and fifty uh, Cherry Trail. CPU. Which is Atom. Yeah. yeah. Uh, now,
1: they have, you can pop that out and pop in a bigger CPU, yeah. I guess.
0: Yeah, and, other, and down the road, other things they say, uh, like uh, potentially like an Android installation, things like that. And uh, it's kind of a neat idea. It reminds me of an old laptop I had where the DVD and the batteries, it might have been CD at the time, all of those bays were all interchangeable, so you could have two batteries or two CD-ROMs and run off yeah, power. Yeah, like uh,
1: on my uh, Lenovo T530, the um, CD-ROMs in the Ultra Bay and I, pop a, I unlock it and pop a thing and it pops out. And I'm like, well, I don't need a DVD drive and throw in an SSD or an extra battery or whatever.
0: Yeah, that is nice. I look back at Doom, a graphic study. A graphic study. Is this about the new Doom game or is this about yes. the... So older? this
1: is a, the new Doom 2016 game and it's actually analyzing one individual frame and the amount of technology that goes into actually making it. Oh, wow. So this frame is, one, is, is like 16 milliseconds of on screen. But it's digging into how it actually is constructed.
0: Wow, that is fascinating. That is gonna that is gonna be a deep dive that I will go into after the show. That looks exactly. great. But uh, people might be interested in that. Wasn't it? Was it SwiftKey we covered not so long ago, where the people started having like email addresses get automatically recommended to them? Was yes, Swiftkey? I think it. Uh, it might have
1: been SwiftKey or something similar to yeah. it. it might have yeah. been Swipe or whatever. Might have been swipe. of them. And it was, uh, yeah, mixing everybody's stuff together, Mm. and suddenly you were getting suggestions of other people's phone numbers, email addresses,
0: and uh, naughty words. So here is another take on it. SwiftKey for Android is now powered by what they say is a neural network. Millions of people will soon utilize machine learning without even noticing. For the ultimate keyboard. That's what they say.
1: Yeah, well, you know, typo correction is great, except for when it keeps turning uh, GPU into the word you, because (laughs) thinking that who would ever talk about a GPU? Like, well, me. It's like, yeah. <laughs> I need a setting that says, I'm, I'm speaking in acronyms for yes. technology. So, you know. Yeah, don't how about credit, that neural network, network learns when things. we're
0: talking in technology acronyms? Yes, yes, yes. Oh, wow, you found a classic. I love this. There's a couple of these, but this one's great. This one is great. Uh, this is uh, music made from Windows sounds, right? Is that what yeah. the system? so Windows system sounds. Yeah, there it goes. It's probably get us taken down, but there we go. Starting to get a bit of a beat now. I <laughs> love it. I'm not even a Windows user, and I like it. That's pretty cool. That is. I think I've heard. I think I've heard a
1: different one of these. Yeah, there's there's a couple uh, different ones of this. So you look around on YouTube. but yeah, it's pretty great. That is great. Uh, just tone shifting and so on, pitch shifting, to, and then the default set of sounds that came with Windows 98 and Windows XP, and uh, cracking those together into actual music. You know, it starts out just you know uh, with the individual sounds, mostly so that you'll recognize. Yep, that, yeah. I wrote, that's that sound. That's that sound. And then it starts mixing them together. And yeah, it's like, it does. hey, that's actually music. Yeah,
0: yeah, that's pretty nice. So apparently the dark web is just filthy with drugs. I had no idea. And uh, some of uh, those uh, dark web dealers are posting photos of their labs.
1: Yes. And uh, this article from Motherboard actually explains why they
0: would want to do that. Yeah, why would they want to do that? That seems yeah. dumb. Well, mm-hmm. really that's what you would think. And
1: then they're, they're, <laughs> well, they, 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 explain to they
0: explain it to you. They explain it. Motherboard's gotten some interesting stuff recently. Mm-hmm. This one sounds like it might be worth a read. How I gained access to T-Mobile's national network for free. We'll see yes. how long it survives so, after this post.
1: <laughs> so, a so. 17-year-old had a paper, uh, the the page go phone, and it was out of money, and but he could still access the internet. It just, it was all captive portal to uh, T-Mobile's thing saying, yeah, "Hey, pay hey, for that minutes." Sure. sure. Uh, but he noticed that the speed test app still worked. So he did some packet captures and figured out that T-Mobile's capture portal thing exempts anything where the URL is slash speed test. No. So he built, he set up his own server to do a proxy where all the URLs is like, you know, slash speed test slash the real (laughs) URL and it proxies it. And uh, now he notices his phone now has access to the entire internet through T-Mobile without ever paying them. Yeah, a that's page, no phone. but they might not. Uh, T Mobile might not even know your actual name and address and so on. T Mobile's got a
0: lot paid. going on on their network right now. That's interesting.
1: Well, I'm guessing almost every other network is very similar.
0: I I, I wonder if you boked around, what you might just find. Yeah. Hmm. Well, who couldn't have seen this one coming? Google funded free Wi-Fi kiosks are being scrapped because the web browsers were pretty much camping there looking at porn.
1: Yeah. So these are kiosks that head out on the street in New York and so on, and they give people access to the internet. Uh, and they work pretty good, but they're going to have to remove the browsing feature from them uh, and keep it mo- down to more of the kiosk features of getting certain information and services and so on. Because uh, <laughs> yeah. there'd be just people like camping on them all day and uh, way too much porn being consumed, apparently.
0: People will still and, figure out a way to look at porn yes.
1: after they do this. But in particular, you know, these are outside of businesses and so on, and they don't want a bunch of creepy people lingering on the street looking at porn on this little kiosk. No, The idea was that it was a quick way to be able to look up services from the city and and information that you needed to find things and services and companies and so on. Uh, Not a bad idea, but...
0: I'm just shocked. Immediately going to
1: be used for porn. Of course.
0: Well, uh, there you go. That brings us on, on a, rather, uh, a rather good one to the end of this roundup. That's a good one to end on right there. If you'd like to submit links to our roundup, techsnap.reddit.com is where you go to submit it. Now, we do stream live on Thursdays at 1 p.m. Pacific. Hey, Alan, yep. what's that somewhere else? 4 p.m. Eastern, 2100 UCC. Exactly. 20. And if, uh, if you've forgotten, you can always check jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar, or better yet, just subscribe to the RSS feed and get it automatically when we release an episode, and you don't have to worry about any of that shenanigans. But a, a special shout out to our live stream who did join us for a double recording session today. Mm-hmm. They are awesome, and you can always be part of it at jblive.tv. Okay, that brings us to the end of this week's episode of TechSnap, and we'll see you right back here next week.